0: So it seems to me that in our current political climate, culture climate, blatant bias, uh, unfortunately, seems to be everywhere. However, there's a whole lot of really good people that participate in unconscious bias. Not meaning to, it just is unconscious (laughs) So in this episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast, I speak with Dolly Chug, and she's the author of a book called The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias, and this is a great leadership, great culture, great workplace discussion, and I think it's an important topic for today. Check it out. Stuff like payroll and benefits are hard. That's why I switched to Gusto. And to help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. If you sign up for their payroll service today, you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash tape. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is Dolly Chug. She's a psychologist and associate professor of management and organizations at the Stern School of Business at New York University. And she's also the author of a book we're going to talk about today, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. So, Dolly, thanks for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, John. It's an honor.
0: I think you're my first Dolly. Ever.
1: Oh, I love it.
0: <laughs> All right. So, uh, quite often I will ask a, an author to kind of unpack the title a little bit. Mm. And so, I'll ask them, you know, what do you mean? But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm having trouble with, like how, how to ask this question, but what do you mean by being the person you mean
1: <laughs> to be? <laughs> yeah. Well, this title, we went through so many to get to this title. It, it, this title gets at the heart of what I think this book is about, which is I'm I'm not an expert on telling people what they should believe or what they should care about. Um, what I'm an expert in is helping people see ways in which what they believe and care about may not align with what's actually happening in their behavior and in their mind. And this title refers to that, that um, whoever it is you mean to be, particularly when it comes to how you treat other people, particularly if they're from a different race or gender or ethnicity or religion or ability level than you. Um, if, If there are perhaps gaps in what you mean to be and how you mean to treat them and what's actually happening, this is a book that helps people reflect and learn and improve.
0: Yeah, and I think the main point is, I mean, we all know people that are just not nice people. Um, Right. And they're sort of overt about it. What you're getting at is the people that that they'd be appalled that somebody might actually interpret that. Right.
1: Yes, that's right. Like those I actually say early in the book, like those people, if you know, this book's not for you. I'm not I'm not going to be able to offer much. Um, This book is for people who are trying, who really are.
0: It's interesting. I have a, uh, a black friend who a um, long time ago told me that, and, and, you know, this gets into different parts of the country, I think, where racism in particular is, I don't want to say it's accepted, but it seems to be more blatant or more overt. And there are mm-hmm. places where it's actually very subtle. I live in Kansas City, and I think most people yeah. in Kansas City would say, well, no, I'm not racist. Right. Y- yet it's sort of, you know, very segregated um and yep. you know and so and he actually said that that was worse that yes. that he'd rather know somebody who was racist yeah. other than somebody just sort of subtly be it does that make yes. sense yeah
1: yeah absolutely and in fact um I don't think I talk about this in the book but there is data out there that says from a physiological standpoint when people face ambiguous racism Uh, it has a greater stress impact. Like their physiology actually spikes in more severe ways than when they face overt, explicit racism. Um, Because it's not just a matter of dealing with whatever you're dealing with. It's also a matter of trying to decode it and unpack it and figure out, is it you and is everyone else seeing this or is it just me? Like there's a a lot more going on in those situations.
0: And and obviously so far we've talked about race, but certainly gender is a part of this as well, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, and in fact, in the book, I don't uh, I don't focus on any one particular dimension of our identity. So I have examples and interviews and research that centers on race, as well as sexual orientation, as well as gender, as well as religion, um, and there's probably a couple of other dimensions that are slipping my mind now. But it, the the psychology is very similar. Uh, the, the the type of mental processes. Involved are not tremendously different. Uh, there there are some subtle differences, but the kind of what I'm offering in terms of tools and strategies are similar.
0: So, talk a little bit about your research uh, for you know coming to your hypothesis because um, because I think it's fascinating, and I'm curious if you got any blowback for how you did it.
1: Yeah, well. So what I do in this book is curate research from social psychology as well as social sciences more broadly. Some of which is mine, but a lot of which is coming from a whole bunch of different other people as well. I would say the research that sort of one of the big foundations of the research here that I that I share is around unconscious or sometimes referred to as implicit bias. And that's certainly been a topic that's gotten a lot of attention and a lot of debate. Another area where I pull in the research is from sociology and economics talking about systemic bias, which is an area I know less about as a psychologist, but where I think I personally learned and grew the most through the writing of this book. Where uh, And that ties very well to your example regarding Kansas City and the segregation. A lot of things that just look like they are the way they are actually have more deep-rooted systemic roots. And some of the research I share in this book was eye-opening to me because I really hadn't been trained in thinking that way and looking that way. And I think it's very helpful um, for all of us to be able to start to spot that around us.
0: Well, and, and the the research I was referring to is um, what I thought was kind of the starting point, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, where you um, actually went to professors at schools and yeah. presented yourself as a uh, candidate uh, for maybe a program who had a question. Right. And then it oh, was sure. like, um, and, and I'm assuming that's what kind of maybe started you on this path or...
1: Um, it, it, it was, it was, uh, along the path. I think I started on this path well before that, but yeah, I'd be happy. Sorry that I missed the cue there. <laughs> um, so that's a study that, uh, was done with Madupe Akinola at the Columbia Business School and Katie Milkman at Wharton. The three of us went to grad school together and we had a terrific mentor, Max Baserman, in grad school, and we've often no- noted how blessed we were to have that. And, it occurred to us that not everyone gets that in grad school. In fact, not everyone even gets access to talk to potential mentors before they apply to grad school, which which all three of us did do before we applied to grad school. So the study we put together, it's methodologically called an audit study, some people call it a sting operation, <laughs> colloquially. Um, the sting operation was that we constructed identities of potential PhD students writing a professor saying, I'm interested in applying to your program, which is sort of a subtle way of saying, I'm looking for a mentor. And I'd like to learn more about your research and your program. Would you be willing to talk to me? I'll be on your campus on this in the state. And um, all of our emails were identical, but the identity as reflected by the name of the the person sending the email varied. We pre-tested lots of names and in the end, constructed identities that were perceived as either male or female, using a gender binary, and um, perceived as either white-sounding, black-sounding, Hispanic-sounding, Chinese-sounding, or Indian-sounding, and then we had multiple names within each of those identities. But it it was about ten. It was it was ten different gender and race slash ethnicity combinations. So each of those quote-unquote, prospective PhD students sent this email to this potential mentor. And to come up with who received the emails, what we did was took the U.S. News & World Report. We randomly picked one professor from every PhD granting department listed in the top 260 schools they list, except for Alaska and Hawaii. And um, that professor was randomly assigned a student who sent them one of these emails? So each professor got one email, and then we um, we had some other nuances to the study that aren't as relevant for this discussion. So I'll I'll put those aside for now and say that what we did was we then focused on um, what responses did we get? Responses were the meetings accepted in the in the war room of research assistants we set we set up to monitor all of these email accounts that we had set up. And what we did find, our our hypothesis was that white men would receive more email responses than the uh, non-white men, all those other identities that I described. And in fact, that is exactly what we found.
0: So as a a researcher, do you you actually want to find something that you weren't (laughs) looking for? Or, I mean, is it Uh, like, oh, that's what we thought and we did all this time to prove what we thought was right.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting especially when you study something like bias, right? Because you know what you want to find is no bias or 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 nothing egregious. Like you don't I I I'm a professor in a university. I want to think highly of how we're doing this and how we're operating as an institution. Th-
0: these were sort of peers too, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> right. And and I should add all three of us were female untenured professors when we ran this study. Um, And there was in this, I think maybe now I'm understanding your earlier question better. There was absolutely tons of blowback on this particular study. We, uh, we expected a little, we didn't expect quite as much as we got. And so it was part of it was people uh, don't like to be deceived. And there was deception in this study. And so we understood that. And um, of course, we canceled all the meetings. That's why we had the War Room of Research Assistance. As soon as someone wrote back, we canceled the meeting, uh, which was at least no one should have been waiting for a student who never showed up. But as a researcher, while we would love to believe there isn't bias in the world, there's lots of evidence that there is. And what we were trying to do is show that it's closer to home than a lot of us realize. And in fact, that is what we found. And to make it even more complicated, we were able to break down the data by discipline and private versus public universities. And all three of us work in business schools that are in private universities. And private showed more bias than public and business was the discipline that showed the most amount of bias.
0: Yeah, that's, I guess none of that's really surprising. Let me ask you this, do, and this would just be – I'm guessing this would just be um, your opinion. But do you believe a, a very similar bias shows up in, uh, in say, resumes and in, in, in people applying for jobs?
1: Yeah, so there have been studies. Um, Sendhil Mullainathan and Marianne Bertrand, economists, they ran a study that actually largely was the inspiration for ours. Where they did that, they changed the resume names, the the names at the top of the resume. And I don't have the results like right on the top of my head, but it was something like roughly um, a black applicant had to apply to two and a half as many jobs to get the same number of callbacks as a white applicant, with with everything else being the same on the resumes.
0: Wouldn't it be great if in your business, all you had to do was the stuff you love, the Reason you started the business and not all that administrative stuff like payroll and benefits. That stuff's hard, especially when you're a small business. Now, I've been delegating my payroll for years to one of those big corporate companies, and I always felt like a little tiny fish, but now there is a much better way. I've switched over to Gusto, and it is making payroll and benefits and HR easy for the modern small business. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service to take care of your team. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. If you sign up today, you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com forward slash tape. So again, I think we know that bias, blatant bias, you know, Is a part of reality. Uh, I'm more interested in knowing when you talk about unconscious bias. Any thoughts on why that occurs?
1: Yeah, I mean, and and let me let me um, in answering that question. Clarify one belief we have about our professor study. We didn't measure whether it was conscious or unconscious bias. We have no way of knowing. But our belief, based off of other data out in the world, is that Unconscious bias played a huge role that it was good people trying to do the right thing um, and so so even there it's it's not evident that, that it's like you know just kind of blatant bias in the sense of being deliberate or conscious. I said that to set up my answer to your 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 question, and I now I've lost your question.
0: The main thing I was saying is you know why does unconscious bias? Yes.
1: Yes. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah. So, well, what we know is that the brain does not have unlimited computing power. So three Nobel Prizes have been won in the last 40 years that are basically sit on this premise that there's limitations to how much information the brain can process at once, particularly consciously. So 11 million bits of information come into our brain at any given moment. Only 40 of them are processed consciously at any given moment. If that's true, if so much of the mental processing that's going on is in the background, low power mode, like when your phone's on low power mode and doing all sorts of stuff that we don't even know what it's doing, the same thing's happening in our brain. And what our brain is doing to kind of cut through the 11 million bits of information is using lots of shortcuts. It's using categories to put things together to keep track of it. It's using heuristics and One result of this is that we do form associations between ideas. If I say peanut butter, you say jelly. Those ideas are sitting in your brain together. You weren't born with that, but at some point you learned it. And that same mental architecture that creates those shortcuts, that creates categories, also then creates some associations that maybe were not what we quite meant to have imprinted in our brains. Um, Beverly Daniel Tatum calls it the smog we breathe from the moment we're born. And some of those associations include we're associating African Americans with violence or with not smart or women with the home and not the workplace. These associations, which may or may not reflect our conscious beliefs are sitting in our brain in that, in that low power mode, Churning away and and filtering into things that we don't intend. This is the part where it gets in the way of us being the person we mean to be.
0: So maybe think about how does this show up every day in the workplace. I'll start with one. Um, I get probably ten LinkedIn requests a day. Um, Yeah, and I'm wondering how much. Unconscious bias goes into my accepting or not accepting yeah. uh, LinkedIn requests. I mean, that's probably yeah. an everyday example of where somebody might actually think about that. Would would, would you? Yeah,
1: think? yeah, absolutely. And um, and I do too. By the way, I absolutely think we have every reason to believe it is filtering in, especially behaviors where we aren't giving a lot of deliberate thought. We're moving quickly. We're moving through our inbox. That's why we actually did for the this, this study I just described, that's why we did emails because everyone's just moving at lightning speed through their inboxes and trying to filter stuff out, particularly those cold call type emails. And these are cold call type LinkedIn requests you're receiving. Um, one person I interviewed for my book, Rick Clow, who's a very senior person at Google Ventures and who takes a lot of pride in his track record in promoting women and hiring women. Um, one of the things that he came to realize when he did a bit of a self-audit on his social media was he realized that he was heavily tilted, 80% plus, in LinkedIn and Twitter and and every sort of medium that he values and where he is an influential voice. He was 80% tilted towards male voices um, in terms of who he was following and so I think these things, even for people like him, found himself inadvertently creating a real skew. And then he went and has actively tried to change that. And he said it's really been eye-opening to realize how many important ideas and voices he, wasn't, he didn't even have access to because he wasn't following the right people.
0: So that brings to a little bit of a point, too, that, you know, that's an active choice and decision yep. that you kind of have to make. Maybe it's a sort of override <laughs> some unconscious yeah. bias. How how much does a lack of exposure to diversity contribute to this? It,
1: it definitely must contribute to it. If, if we don't have in-person um, exposure and we're going, for example, off of media exposure, um, the studies that are being done there, Dr. Stacy Smith, who has a terrific TED Talk and a number of research reports, has analyzed our movies and our TV shows and our advertising and shown that we, if Martians came to Earth, they would completely misunderstand who we were as a planet and who lived here and uh based off of what you see in our TV shows and movies. Um, so absolutely, if we don't have direct exposure and all we're getting is this kind of indirect media level exposure, we are not setting ourselves up for success. We're breathing in a smog that's really, really packing it into our brain with associations that may not represent what we're after.
0: So what do you want to accomplish with this book? Um, is this a, a, an activist movement or is this a, hey, wake up good people and be a little better?
1: Yeah, I think it's closer to the second. I certainly wrote the book hoping activists would find it useful, but I don't think of myself as an activist. I I describe myself as a smart, semi-bold person um, who, you know, is trying to do the right thing, but is kind of timid and probably isn't brave enough to go get arrested and, you know, be an activist with a capital A. Um, And I think that's a lot of people out there. But I think, we care a lot about being good people and there are ways that we as semi bold people can still act like the alternative is not inaction or silence. Like there maybe maybe we're not ready to do the big daring thing. I tell a story at the beginning of the book and the prologue about me attending a black lives matter protest and passionately wanting to support their work. And, um, at the same time, just feeling completely out of place. Like, I just don't know that this is my role. Uh, I'm just such a wimp. Like, it's just, but, but maybe there are other forms of little A activism that are for people like me where, we, you know, it's the conversations we have at our dinner tables. It's the books we read our children. It's the questions we ask in meetings. Um, it's the thought we give to which LinkedIn uh, profiles we accept. I, I think these are ways in which we don't have to be activists to act.
0: So, if I'm the leader of a company, um, uh-huh. and obviously I'm going to set a lot of the tone for what the culture is, um, what are some things that you would suggest I do to, to make this, um, not, not to like dictate, as you said, how people should yeah. think, but to make this yeah. a priority in terms of, of at least um, recognition?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think if you're the leader of the company, you have two really big leverage points. Um, One is make yourself vulnerable as a learner in this area. So what I mean by that is a CEO that stands up and says, the rest of you, need to stop being so racist and sexist, um, is is A, obviously just not it's gonna not gonna be effective, but B, it's also dishonest because there's no none of us are immune from how the mind works. And so the first leverage point a CEO has is to really be willing to be candid that they are also learning and they are doing the work that they're asking their employees to do as well. And that part of that means that there could have been mistakes in the past. There could be bias that they need to overcome um, that's that's unconscious or was outside of their awareness in the past. So that's that's one really powerful thing. And I, I um, um, we see examples, for example, Salesforce, where the CEO there, um has has really been powerful in his willingness to do that. The second leverage point, which is also a salesforce example, is I asked the Chief Equality Officer there, which is a new role they created. Tony Profit came from Microsoft to join them. And I asked him, so tell me like what's tell me what's the big thing like that that organizations should be doing? And I was expecting this really, like thunderous idea or initiative. And what he said, was thunderous in its ordinariness. It was run better meetings. I was like, run better meetings? He said, well, now think about it. Whatever's happening in your organization is happening in your meetings. The same people are being included or excluded, being interrupted, being credited, being undercredited, overcredited, sitting at the table, not sitting at the table. All those dynamics are replicating in your meetings. And we all know that meetings are notoriously ineffective and bad uses of time and really boring and, and really frustrating. And so this is a double edged um, approach, because a, if you run better meetings, you'll just run better meetings, and that's good business practice. You'll use your employees' time better. But B, if you run better meetings, what you're probably doing is something like balancing airtime. You're probably encouraging more um, constructive disagreement. You're probably um, seeking input widely as opposed to dictating how things are going to happen. And these are all the things that you are seeking in a more diverse and inclusive workplace to begin with. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the real keys to that, too, is that over time, that's you know, that's going to let that younger person say, oh, I can speak up here.
1: Exactly. So so a lot of like if you talk to people about times in their organization where they felt the real diminishing of who they were, the marginalization of they were of who they are, it really often happens in these interactions in meetings or in what they're not included in. These are the moments where we can really think about inclusion in a very specific, concrete, actionable way.
0: <laughs> it's, uh, I, you know, it's been a long, long time since I've been in corporate uh, uh, uh-huh. settings. But, you know, that was all, That was also the flip side of that. Meetings were typically used as sort of a political device. And so so often it seemed like uh, in who did get invited and what was going yes. on in that room that we're yes. included in. <laughs> it was almost like used as a tool the opposite way.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so th- that what that tells us is that we can use them to shape cultures and we can use them to shape outcomes.
0: Dolly, where can uh, more people find out about your work and uh, obviously the book?
1: Oh, John, that's so nice of you to ask. Um, my book is available for pre-order um, on Amazon as well as all other booksellers. It's called uh, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. And if they want to see more about my research, I have a website, com, or if you Google NYU and Dolly, I am the only one that comes up.
0: Yeah, and the the book comes out when? Uh, Because a lot of times people listen to the show years from now.
1: Oh, yes, of course. Thank you. It comes out September 4th, 2018. So you're hearing this after september 4th 2018 it's ready for you
0: congratulations really really important topic and i, I think it's something that uh, not only needs to be consumed from the book but obviously uh practice in our language and and thought and everyday rituals
1: oh well thank you so much john it was really a pleasure to be able to share it with your listeners congratulations on your great podcast